Hello and welcome to the November 3rd Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with some highlights of what's new in the journal. I hope that you, your loved ones, and your colleagues are managing to stay well as the COVID-19 pandemic surges in so many places in the U.S. and around the globe. A reminder that the American College of Physicians and Annals of Internal Medicine have made publicly available many resources on annals.org and acponline.org to assist in the care of patients with COVID-19. On October 16th, the American College of Physicians and Annals of Internal Medicine hosted a virtual forum assembling some of the country's leading experts to discuss timely evidence-based information related to what physicians and other healthcare professionals need to know about a COVID-19 vaccine. During the forum, experts discussed the progress of the science and the challenges related to bring the vaccine to the public. The forum featured Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, who spoke about the science behind COVID-19 vaccines that are currently under development. Dr. David Kessler, a former commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, discussed the U.S. vaccine approval process. Dr. Beth Bell, a member of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, reviewed the process the committee will follow to develop clinical recommendations related to approved vaccines. And Dr. Rachel Levine, Secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Health, discussed the political and policy environment and the importance of public trust in implementing a successful vaccination program. Video of the forum accompanies an editorial that I and my colleagues, Dr. Deborah Cotton and Dr. Darlin Moyer, wrote that is available on annals.org. The video is publicly available and viewers can obtain up to two hours CME and MOC credit. While much uncertainty surrounds vaccines for COVID-19 and the course of the pandemic in general, what is certain is that physicians will have a critical role in the implementation of a successful immunization program once a safe and effective vaccine becomes available. Physicians must be prepared and scientific knowledge, untarnished by political views, is essential to this preparation. My colleagues and I think that the forum provided sound baseline information and highlighted several questions that physicians should ask when data become available and approval of a vaccine ensues. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, many national health organizations emphasized social distancing, especially for individuals deemed to be extremely vulnerable on the basis of certain underlying medical conditions. Although Down syndrome was not specifically mentioned on the official list of conditions that put people at increased risk, Down syndrome is associated with immune dysfunction, congenital heart disease, and pulmonary pathology. Therefore, there was some concern that patients with Down syndrome would not do well if they got infected with SARS-CoV-2. In an article published in Annals on October 21st, researchers from the University of Oxford, the University of Nottingham, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and the University College London report a study of a cohort of 8.26 million adults to evaluate if Down syndrome is a risk factor for severe outcomes of COVID-19. The authors found an estimated four-fold increased risk for COVID-19-related hospitalization and a tenfold increase for COVID-19-related death in persons with Down syndrome. They believe that this novel evidence should be used by public health organizations, policymakers, and healthcare workers to strategically protect these vulnerable individuals. Mifepristone, one of two drugs used together to induce a medical abortion, was approved 20 years ago by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, yet it cannot be routinely prescribed and dispensed in the U.S. because it is covered by a Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Program, or REMS program, 
REMS programs are intended to minimize harms from special safety risks through such precautions as in-person visits, distribution controls, laboratory testing requirements, and a more robust process of informed consent. Although many healthcare providers have long called for reconsideration of the Mifepristone REMS program, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought new attention to the issue, in part because of the risk of in-person visits. A commentary published on October 21st discusses the implication of the REMS requirement on mifepristone. The authors believe FDA releasing the REMS requirements for mifepristone would represent a meaningful step for women's health and the exercise of their constitutional rights. Next is a research and reporting methods article that proposes a set of clinical endpoints that the authors believe will facilitate evaluation and comparison of the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines that are under development. The authors, a group of industry, government, and academic researchers, believe that a primary endpoint of vaccine trials should be clinically meaningful, sensitive, and specific. A simple designation, such as reducing COVID-19 disease severity, seems uncomplicated but the authors argue that it masks potential interpretability and misclassification concerns. Such endpoints depend on sets of prescribed symptoms and myriad definitions could be used to specify these symptom sets. Although the FDA recommends defining the COVID-19 endpoint as virologically confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection accompanied by one or more of 11 symptoms, trialists have latitude to select particular symptoms and severities needed to trigger virologic testing. The authors emphasize the importance of defining a common COVID-19 endpoint that can be used consistently across trials, both for interpretation of results and for facilitation of meta-analyses of trials. Finally, given that a desired vaccine-induced decrease in the incidence of symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infections may be accompanied by a shift towards more asymptomatic infections, the authors also advocate that vaccine trials include the ability to evaluate vaccine efficacy against the asymptomatic infection endpoint in trial designs. Healthcare is a key issue in the U.S. presidential election, especially in light of the problems with the current system that have been underscored during the COVID-19 pandemic. Thus, it is important for voters to know the healthcare proposals of the two presidential candidates. To help prepare voters on October 26th, Annals published a commentary by American College of Physician leaders that compared the proposals of President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden to the American College of Physicians' comprehensive framework for improving healthcare in the U.S. that was published in Annals in a special journal supplement in January 2020. The article compares ACP's healthcare vision to the views and public records of the candidates on eight different challenges facing the U.S. healthcare system, including achieving universal healthcare coverage, ensuring coverage for those with pre-existing conditions, having insurance plans that include essential healthcare benefits packages emphasizing high-value care, expansion of Medicaid to lower-income persons in all states, prescription drug pricing, physician payment reform that appropriately values primary care and cognitive care services, decreasing healthcare administrative requirements and standardizing and streamlining billing and reporting, and equitable access to care regardless of an individual's personal characteristics or life circumstances. An article published on October 27th uses an agent-based computer model to illustrate that delayed implementation of, low adherence to, and premature easing of social distancing measures generally resulted in increased cases of COVID-19 in urban areas of the United States. 
These findings highlight the importance of enacting region-specific guidelines for social distancing and show the value of using the COVID-19 specific model to guide policy. Researchers from the University of Wisconsin developed the model to estimate the effect of social distancing measures on patients of varying ages in three unique regions, Dane County, Wisconsin, the Milwaukee metropolitan area, and New York City. The model simulated the effect of different times for implementing and easing social distancing measures at different levels of adherence. The findings showed that the timing of implementation of social distancing and adherence had a large effect on the number of cases that varied widely by region. For example, had social distancing measures been initiated in New York City one week earlier than they actually were, infections could have been reduced by 80% by May 31st, whereas a one-week delay in initiating the measures would have led to a five-fold increase in the number of infections in the same time frame. The effect in New York City was large compared with Dane County and the Milwaukee metro area. According to the researchers, the regional variations in cases, even within the same state, show the importance of considering implementation of reopening policies at the regional level. They also suggest that even when social distancing mandates are eased, communities should maintain behaviors that reduce transmission, such as continuing to wear masks. Also published on October 27th is a case report that suggests that the checkpoint inhibitor Navivolab may be an effective treatment for refractory Burkitt lymphoma, a rare and aggressive form of cancer. Checkpoint inhibitors have been proven effective and are approved for treating Hodgkin's lymphoma and primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma. However, they have shown limited efficacy in common non-Hodgkin's lymphoma subtypes and use in patients with Burkitt lymphoma has not been previously reported. Updates of the living evidence reviews on masks to reduce SARS-CoV-2 infection and the role of ACE inhibition in SARS-CoV-2 infection were also published on October 27th. While new evidence on both topics has become available, it did not substantively change prior conclusions. Moving to November 3rd. Establishing cost-effectiveness is important for informing policy considerations, clinical guidelines, insurance coverage, and drug prices. A study that is likely to influence cost-effectiveness analyses demonstrated that healthcare interventions with incremental cost-effectiveness ratios above the range of 100,000 to 150,000 per quality-adjusted life year are unlikely to be considered cost-effective within the United States healthcare system. The U.S. healthcare system readily adopts and pays for costly new treatments without requiring improvements in health outcomes to justify those costs. Spending less on treatments that offer little or no improvement in outcomes would allow more spending on other treatments that may offer larger health gains without increasing the overall healthcare budget. However, no consensus exists about what the cost threshold should be in relation to health improvements gained. In the current Annals article, using model inputs from demographic data and published literature, researchers created a computer simulation to estimate a U.S. cost-effectiveness threshold based on how many people would drop insurance coverage if premiums were increased to pay for a costly new treatment. They then estimated the effects that loss of insurance would have on population, morbidity, and mortality, and found that for about every 100 to 150,000 in additional healthcare cost, one quality adjusted life year would be lost. According to the author of an accompanying editorial, Dr. Steve Pearson from the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, this work is important because healthcare needs to help not only those patients in the room, but also the patients who will be affected by how a decision to spend resources on one healthcare intervention affects resources available to direct to other interventions. 
Policymakers, clinicians, and the public need to recognize that when prices for services exceed a certain cost in relation to their benefits, real harm comes to the system overall. The November In the Clinic Review provides practical advice for physicians on how to care for patients who use cannabis and those with cannabis use disorder. The review offers evidence-based answers to frequently asked questions about cannabis use, including the health consequences, medical benefits, legal issues, and available treatments for cannabis use disorder. The past 20 years have witnessed an explosion nationwide in legal access to cannabis and cannabis-derived products for medical and recreational purposes. With expanded legal access, there has been great concern that use, especially among adolescents, could increase fueling the pipeline of addiction. In addition, increased availability of cannabis-derived products sparks fears of complications such as child poisonings and intoxicated driving. Currently, millions of adults now meet criteria for cannabis use disorder in a given year, and all clinicians have a vital role in improving clinical management from screening and diagnosis to overseeing treatment plans. While there are no medications specifically approved for cannabis use disorder, the authors provide advice for the pharmacological and psychotherapeutic treatments available to clinicians that show some effectiveness. Finally, November 3rd brings the latest episode in the Dr. Mom series of Annals of Graphic Medicine and the latest episode of the Annals on Call podcast. In this podcast episode, Dr. Center discusses the controversial issue of whether race should be factored into equations used to estimate glomerular filtration rates with Dr. Ash Sagel, Annals Associate Editor for Nephrology. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I encourage you to go to annals.org to take a look at some of the new material I've mentioned. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.